So I'm just delighted to have Jacob Popovich here. He writes a blog, blog called Putinaman. And I was just completely blown away by it when I saw it for the first time. Uh, both in terms of you know, the traditional things that rationalists do really well, but the thing that impressed me even more is that he's able to deal with topics which are far more complex than most rationalists deal with, uh, and he's able to think about it in, in those terms. Like, for example, I liked his commentary on Jared Pearson very much, of being able to kind of put it in perspective. So with that quick introduction, uh, we're going to just jump into yeah. the questions. Um, the key idea of rationality is to think of rationality in terms of territory and map. Could you, maps, could you talk a little bit more about that? Maybe, first I wanna say about my blog. So, like, like what we call rationality is sort of like online community and movement started about 10 years ago. So there's already been a 10 year tradition of rationalist blogging and I feel like if you haven't read any of it, then you jump into any part of it, even like mine, it's like, it blows your mind. And like when I write stuff, I don't find it really impressive. Uh, like, oh, this, I don't know, Scott wrote, Alexander wrote about this better. Robin Hanson has a book about it. So I don't know how much credit I want to take like my own writing versus just falling on a 10 year tradition of really cool stuff that's been happening and just a few people found out about it and now when everybody else finds out about it they get really excited so I, I just said like I felt like this about six years ago and I discovered it um, so how many people here were so switching to territory and maps right now how many people here were um, basically read thinking fast and slow okay so the kind of rationality builds from like, the first idea is that some things seem right to you in your brain, but they're actually not right. You're actually wrong about stuff. Uh, and this is like a step up from the intuitive position, which is everybody else is wrong and I'm right about stuff. And like, why are they so wrong? Can they be right? And then the next step from that is to realize, okay, there's probably some sort of reality out there that kind of isn't changing and we just have different views of it. So raise your hand if you think that 301 is a prime number. Raise your hand if you think that 301 is not a prime number. Raise your hand if you're uncertain, you could bet. So it's kind of like a pretty simple example. Like in reality, 301 is either a prime number or isn't. In this case, it isn't, and everybody who raised their hand, you failed. It's seven times 43. But inside your head, you don't know that. Like the fact that it's true in reality, like numbers are as objective as they can be, and the same is true of any physical fact. Uh, that doesn't change. Like in your head, you can have uncertainty, and it's useful to think about that uncertainty. Um, you know, there are some other useful examples to think of maps and rationality. So, you know, almost everything you're trying to do in the world, you can think of this way. Like, I was trying to get down here from uptown. Say, so, okay, I can take the subway, and apply some like map of New York that's like the subway map. I'm like, oh, I need to take the L and switch to the one or something like that. Or I can uh, look at the sun, and it's like around noon, so I just like follow the sun and head south. Uh, or just like ask people. 
all together. Like each one of those implies some sort of map of New York. Like one implies a map where the two train goes north-south. And another implies a map of New York as like, it's filled of like mostly honest people that like will tell you where Wall Street is and they know where it is. Uh, and in the end, like New York is just made up of atoms. And even that's kind of like fake, like atoms may be fake, but uh, we have to impose some sort of structure around it to work with it. That's kind of what we call a map. Uh, and like a useful way to think, well, how to like, be less wrong about things is, okay, I have like all kinds of maps. I want to bring them closer to the territory. Uh, it's like, you know, when I look at them and I like, actually go out to the territory, I see what I expected. I don't see what I didn't expect to see. Uh, it kind of makes the map good. And this is like a lot of, it seems like a pretty obvious philosophical point, but then you see people miss it all the time. So people are confused about uh, definitions and words. I don't know. Is a whale a fish? Is Donald Trump racist? Uh, it's like, but those are categories that kind of exist in your head. So there might be like interesting questions to ask about Donald Trump. Like how does this policy actually gonna affect immigration or minorities and stuff like that? And it's like, it's like a lot more interesting than people being stuck for hours around definitions. Like racist in some ways like a feature of a map. The world probably isn't divided into some people who are like inherently deeply racist, the same way physical particles can be like of one kind or another kind. Um, so the categories are one of them. Uh, things like purposes. So now I had a discussion with someone about guns. That person said, okay, we need to ban guns because like they're instruments of murder. That's their purpose. I said, oh, you mean like with guns, it's very easy to kill people. And if we banned guns, even if like somebody wanted to kill another person, they would have to use tools that are less effective. So their victim has more chance of like making it out alive. And she's like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with like effectiveness. Guns are just created for murder. And this is like a pretty interesting distinction because to me, like the murderness of guns is not the property of guns. It's like a property of people and how like we look at guns, like what we use them for. A gun is just a collection of metal parts. Um, so like, even smart people often mix up properties of a territory and properties of a map. Um, like Jordan Peterson went on Sam Harris's podcast and instead of talking about interesting things, they argued about the definition of the word truth for two hours. Like, okay, like definitions of words, whatever. Definitions of words like properties of maps. You're not talking about anything actually interesting. So I think maybe like a lot of rationality is uh, taking obvious philosophical ideas, like there's reality and there's our understanding of reality, but then like actually applying it in real life when you talk to people, when you're trying to figure stuff out. Um, why do you call your, why did you decide to call your block Kutanaman? Um, because it's only 11 characters and I thought it would be easier. But then it turned out when I actually tell people Putanaman, they're like, they don't know intuitively how to spell it. So I have to tell, okay, just Google, put a number on it. Um, so for me, the question is tend more than other people to kind of model the world in more explicit models that use numbers, but I kind of take it even further than most rationalists. So I kind of thought, okay, this is going to be my niche that I'm going to write about. Like an interesting example. Uh, yesterday, I was talking to someone, so I bought like a new shiny phone, and I'm really excited about it. And it cost $1,000. And somebody said, well, you can buy like the Note phone, like a Galaxy S7 from three years ago. And it only, only costs like 
500. Like, is this phone really twice as good? Like, no, actually, I think, I think actually this one's like 20% better. But, like, price is the wrong number to use. Because if my only choice was like no smartphone at all or this phone for 5,000, I'd probably pay $5,000 for it. So like I'm getting $5,000 worth of value out of it. The fact that it costs 1,000 is just a lucky coincidence of, I don't know, the competitive market for phones and how much they cost to make and the cost of labor in Taiwan. Uh, so if I value this at 5,000, like an old phone at 4,000, then yeah, I'll definitely buy this one, it's worth more. Um, so first, both the fact that like, my friend asked me this question and the fact that like, I immediately came up with like, trying to quantify the enjoyment I get out of a phone in terms of dollars, uh, is like a feature of a lot of my writing, and it's not maybe core to rationality, but something a lot of rationalists do. Uh, so I want to also give a word of warning. I came up with this theory after I already bought this phone, so it's very suspect, right? If like I actually came up with this mathematical theory and he told me that I'm an idiot that made the wrong decision, I would trust that model more. It's like very easy to rationalize with numbers, but still, they give you some kind of grasp of objective reality. Like next time I make a phone purchasing decision, I might think back to this model. And like maybe make a better decision other than just coming up with clever arguments at parties about why I did one thing or another. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my niche in the rational blogosphere. You talked briefly about uh, the dangers of rationalization. Yeah. How do you watch out against uh, you yourself doing rationalizations? Um, I think it comes down to a lot of habits. I think the most important thing is actually, so I recommended some of Julia Galef's uh, YouTube videos to Shrikant, which I haven't actually watched a lot of them. And then Shrikant watched them and like recommended them to me. I'm like, oh, I should probably watch them. So I, wa <laughs> I watched uh, her TED talk this morning. Uh, so Galef, G-A-L-E-F, highly recommended. Um, so she talked like, okay, you can learn a lot of techniques. Like, okay, think of counterfactuals. Like, would I come up with this system if instead I bought this phone? Or, I don't know, uh, try to like stress test my model. Like, when I think about, but like a car, or like the rent I pay, or the shirt I wear, do they fit in the same? So you can like try to push your models outside of a specific case when you want them to uh, get to the right answer. And I actually think that's not super useful. I think what's really useful as the core thing, you can call it scout mindset. It's like just a desire to actually be true, like be correct about things and find out what's true. Uh, so one thing that's useful for that is that among rationalists, if you like say that you change your mind about something. Like, hey, I thought the crazy in the minimum wage was a dumb idea, but like now I've seen some evidence from Seattle and I actually think, I don't know, it might work in big cities. Uh, in a lot of other places, you get negative social reinforcement. People are like, oh, you're like a flip-flopper who like doesn't stand by his ideals. And stuff like a rationalist, I hang out with other rationalists. We like really give each other positive reinforcement. Like, ah, it's like somebody changed his mind. It's like a badge of honor if you do it honestly. <laughs> so, kind of with social incentives, just be like a, a desire to be correct about things rather just like to argue well. Um, you kind of, I think maybe rationalists have some of this desire internally, like they care more about like being right about random things than about being popular, even when being popular is more useful. Uh, and then they kind of put themselves in an environment that reinforces um, 
the desire. And then like, once you have it, then it's like, not hard to apply the techniques of like devising yourself, watching out for rationalization, thinking of alternatives, etc. Let's uh, spend more time talking about uh, Julia Galef's idea of scout mindset um, and soldier mindset. Uh, what she holds is that most people have the soldier mindset of saying, here I am, these are my values, this is what I see the world is right now, I'm completely motivated to act, let me go ahead and act now. The scout mindset is different in the sense that you're not actually fighting. The scout goes out, further out from the current battle line to, to take in what is going on with the map. It's saying, okay, where are the forces? Are the forces actually there? And they are continuously trying to get new information to correct and rebuild the map. That's a very different kind of mindset than a soldier mindset. So do you want to elaborate on these two distinctions and how different people kind of use one mindset versus the other? Yeah, so I think soldier mindset is pretty common. It's like pieces of evidence are like mercenaries in a battlefield. You want to recruit them to your side. Um, so, I remember I was talking about immigration with someone. That person was like really against immigration. And saw some like piece of data that, um, and I think that the crime rate among a certain kind of immigrant uh, is higher. Uh, and like their unemployment is higher too. So it's like, ah, you see, they're like criminals and they just accuse welfare. And then, I actually looked at that person's tweet and like previously some data came out that uh, showed the opposite. So that's like, no, actually they have uh, lower unemployment. And he reacted by like, ah, you see they're still in their jobs. So it's like, well, if like them having low unemployment rate is like evidence against immigration and having high unemployment rate is also evidence against immigration, then like using the word evidence is a bit strange. Like you're not really using it as evidence. You're kind of saying, okay, how can I recruit it to my side? Uh, like a big part of scout mindset is thinking, okay, I found out something about unemployment rate. Like if I found out the opposite, would it support my position? Would it go against it? Like, um, yeah, I think, I think the problem is for most things in life, especially things that people talk about, I don't know, politics, who's going to win the NBA championship, uh, stuff about culture. It doesn't like, actually matter that much if you're correct or not. Like Nobody really cares what I think about the minimum wage. It just doesn't affect the world at all. Nobody asks me. I'm not in Congress. I'm not even a citizen. I don't vote here. So... Like you don't have a lot of immediate incentives to be correct about things. And instead, uh, you want to be popular, you want to fit in with the tribe, you want to believe things that are nice to believe, you want to believe things that people that you admire believe. Uh, and then once in a while you run into like a real problem that requires assessing evidence. Like maybe you have like a medical problem, like you don't know which treatment to use. And you're kind of screwed because you don't have any of the habits around how to like actually find out answers to difficult questions. You're just like kind of going along with what's socially acceptable and things like that. So scout mindset when you see a question and kind of try to step out and figure it out for yourself um, is useful. It's important to understand that it's not the default way. I mean, I know maybe it's like, like we're all nerds, so it's like a bit more intuitive for us. Uh, but it's not like super natural and native to people. 
Uh, it needs to be cultivated. Excellent. Let's come at it from another angle. Um, I'd link to an article by Scott Alexander who talks about three different epistemologies, three different methods of thinking. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I just had to reread it to remember what it is. So he talked about Aristotelianism, which is the idea, okay, you're just gonna sit, and you start from some axioms, then you prove things. And things are either you can prove them, and then they're like 100% true, or they're false, uh, and then you can disprove them. And actually, I think there was a movement, like an intellectual movement that called themselves, like called itself rationalism, maybe in the 19th century, that basically did that. So it's a bit of an unfortunate name. The people, ah, rationalists, you're the people who just like sit in the chair and like theorize if you can figure out from force principles whether we should raise the minimum wage or not. Um, so first of all, Again, words the crashes are part of the map, so we don't really care that much. We're just kind of like stuck with this name, so we're stuck with this name. Uh, and also, this is the kind of like a weird approach. Like instead of trying to go out and look at the world and like talk to people who work minimum wage jobs, you will try to figure it out from first principles. And then, it's kind of a reaction to that, I think Scott calls it Wilsonism after Robert Anton Wilson, who I've read nothing by, so I'm not an authority at all, who's kind of comes from a position of extreme, extreme skepticism. It's like, well, we can't like really, really be sure about anything, you know, anything that you believe. You can imagine like a world where that's not true. You can really prove things, the world is complicated complicated and everybody who's trying to proclaim confidence in one thing or another is just like trying to fool you and it's just a power play because no one knows anything uh, let me just elaborate yeah. on these two terms because uh, you know it's like people have used all kinds of words to describe these approaches like so the first approach holds that almost ideas exist these are given and they almost ascribe more truth to the ideas than actual perception of reality. Traditionally, this is the Platonic approach, where you say, uh, and religion is like, like religious books would fall into that category. Truth is here. And then you kind of look at reality deductively from that. So that's one approach. The second approach is kind of subjectivist or empiricist approach where you're simply saying that, well, nothing can be figured out. You have just individual impressions of things and you, that's all you can go with. So those are the two extremes. Um, yeah, that's so like religion is a fun point. So I have kind of like a half serious example, but I think it's a good illustration. So like, like I call myself an atheist and somebody asked me like, ah, oh, so like, have you proven that God doesn't exist? I'm like, no, I haven't proven it. I think God is unlikely. I mean, I give God maybe one in a million uh, probability. And the person like, blew their minds. Like, how, like, what does it mean, one in a million probability? Like, how can you put a number on that? And I, I was like, I have a blog called Put a Number on It, so it's a hobby of mine. But then, I don't know, there like, doesn't seem a lot of evidence for God. Like, I don't see miracles. But then, okay, people wrote a book and people believe in it. Now, I can think of alternate explanations why people would write a book. But definitely the fact that, I don't know, the Old Testament exists should be positive evidence. Because if it didn't exist, I would definitely downgrade the probability uh, of let's say the Jewish God existing. So I don't know if I weigh it all up, like maybe one in a million isn't a super rigorous number, but it's kind of useful number. What is it useful for? Okay, the thing that it's most useful for is to answer the question, what would change my mind? Like if I walk outside here and I see a bush that is burning and is not consumed, and I hear a voice from the sky, uh, it's like, oh, this is precedent, this has happened to Moses, this is like strong evidence for God. But 
well, how strong evidence? Like, it could happen in a world, like in a universe where there's no God and my friends are pranking me and she can spike my water bottle with hallucinogens. <laughs> but it's definitely at least a hundred times more likely in a world in which God exists. Because I don't know, we have a book that describes the exact same thing. Okay, so if that happened, I would definitely upgrade from one in a million to like one in 10,000 belief. And if I see like two more miracles, I'll be like 100% devout Jew. Because like, if they're like independent pieces of evidence, I'm like, I better like not, not risk it. It seems like, and this is the same for a lot of other things. So once you put a number and try to quantify your uncertainty instead of just saying, well, we can't know about God. So like, what's the point of even talking about it? Or trying to prove or disprove it from first principles. You look at the evidence, you need to like start from some prior uh, updating it. So people talk about Bayesianism, which is kind of like the name people give to the sort of epistemology, this way of figuring out what's true that rationalists use. Uh, it's based on pretty simple probability theory and simple rules of, okay, I gave like some probabilities to different hypotheses. Now some evidence came in, so I changed them somewhat. And I think it's really more useful in terms of it being future looking. Like what would it take to convince me that the minimum wage is good or bad? What would it take to convince me that God exists? What would it take to convince me uh, of anything, basically? Like, what would it take to convince me that two plus two equals three is one of the posts in the sequences? I don't know, if I put two apples in a bag and I put two more apples in the bag and I open the bag, there are three apples. I'm like, that's weird. That's like some evidence, like a little bit of evidence that two plus two equals three. Maybe I was confused all this time. Uh, it's kind of a way of quantifying your uncertainty. And it's more like not to treat those numbers super seriously. Like this one in a million isn't some, it's not the sort of number that, I don't know, I would put on a financial accounting balance sheet where like every cent is important and you have to justify every number. But like I claim that one in a million that God exists or one in three that the Warriors will win the NBA championship contains a lot more information than saying they'll definitely win because they're the best team or we can't know who'll win. Like basketball is so unpredictable and there are so many factors. Okay, so let's yeah. go step by step. We have kind of, um, we have said there are these two opposing views epistemology which have uh, opposing views of epistemology which have really done battle throughout for the you know human mind you know throughout history this is a third way you know i think bayesian thinking would be a good way of describing it um, i think kind of a lot of science depends on using this kind of thinking so what is this kind of thinking so let, let's try to um, kind of you know talk about in general terms what what it is i think one of the key features of it is that it holds out the possibility that it is that you're wrong in a very explicit way like the first view the platonic view holds that this is just true and you don't you're not even considering the possibility that you're wrong you're just deductively applying it the second view the subjectivist view that doesn't hold that there is anything like truth whereas this view is saying this is my best you know this i believe in this to this much extent so it holds explicitly out the possibility that you can be wrong and this is very hard to do because the subconscious rebels against it and subconscious naturally wants certainty so i think that's that's one of the characteristics holding out that you're you're wrong uh, would you would you agree yeah so it's interesting i think that like people intuitively kind of use 
Bayesianism a little bit. So, I don't know, just a simple thing. Uh, you go outside and like, the ground is wet. Do you think it's likely that it rained? Yes, you probably think it's like, likely that it rained because everything is wet. And then I point to, I don't know, a guy with a hose on the roof just like, spraying everything. You're like, okay, does this make you think it's less likely that it rains? Like, oh yeah, it's less likely now because I see an alternative explanation. So, like, that's purely Bayesian thinking. You haven't proven whether it's rained or not, but oh, like the fact that alternative explanations make you downgrade the probability of something that you only believed because it explains the evidence that you see. Um, so, I think people use words like likely, possible, probable, I'd bet, uh, I don't think all the time. And I think what Bayesianism does is say, oh, when you're like using those words and you like admit that you might be wrong and you want to like consider different amounts of might be wrongness, uh, we can like use some math that follows rules and we can actually prove that that's the optimal way to think of it. People are like, whoa, 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 I'm just, I'm just thinking about the world. Why are we doing calculus here? Um, but I don't think it's that. Like people kind of deep down, like they know they could be wrong about things. They know some things are more likely than others. It's not some alien way of thinking. Okay, um, let, let's take me, I, I found like Julia's three principles, you know, in one of her videos, she identifies the three very intuitive ways of using this kind of thinking. The first one she says is that be aware of the priors. So that means, for example, on, on a college, college campus, you meet somebody who's shy and you ask yourself, what is the percentage of chance that he's in the math PhD program? Okay, um, so the immediate answer that will come to your subconscious is there is a high probability because math PhDs tend to be shy, is that that's what you found. But when you try to do the priors of saying, okay, before encountering this person, in reality, what is the chance? You will have to, you will have to calculate what is the percentage of people on the campus that are math PhDs. And what is the percentage of math PhDs that are shy? Let's say 80% of them are shy. And what about the rest of the people? They're like, like 92 or 95% is the rest of the people. And what percentage of them are shy? Then when you calculate it from that perspective, the number is going to be very different from your immediate. So being aware of the priors is the first recommendation that she has. Any comments? I have a lot to add to that. I don't know. It's a, yeah, that's a good example. Okay. Um, the, the second principle that she recommends is to explicitly ask, if I was wrong about this, what would I see? What evidence would I see? Because what happens is that because of confirmation bias, you keep on looking for evidence that will support you. This is explicitly looking for evidence which will prove you wrong. I think that is the second principle. Any, any, anything you would like to add? Yeah. Um. It's really, actually, I had a friend told me a story yesterday that um, they were at a concert in Central Park last summer. It was some like free concert in the park. And then somebody started shouting, I think somebody stepped on a piece of metal and it sounded a bit like a gunshot. And so somebody started screaming, they're shooting, they're shooting. And there was a big stampede and everybody tried to get out and people got injured. So, yeah. Okay. So, it's like an interesting case. So I think everyone was a rationalist. They really, well, I mean, first we need to consider the base rate, right? Like, 
I don't know, shootings are pretty rare. They're maybe like two a year in the US. Maybe, I don't know, I have like, yeah. Um, actually, it was a music concert, so you couldn't literally hear anything. And with all the, all the stars on the stage and NYPD going to the stage and stopping the show and telling everybody we have no idea what's happening, just leave this place as soon as that creates the panic and almost stampede. So people like jumped over the fences and barricades and it was complete chaos. It, it was yeah. scary, it was scary because we didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they like, it's kind of like a good case of like applying some base. It's like, okay, like, what's the base rate? Like, shootings are rare. People hearing loud noises is probably more common. Also, okay, if this was a shooting, like, the fact we don't know what's happening is like not strong evidence that the shooting is happening. Like, we don't see any guns. We don't hear any clear gunshots. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, if any rationalists are like actually like, rational enough that we're in the concert and somebody yells they're shooting, they will keep their cool. <laughs> so the third principle yeah. that she talks about is, you know, Bayesianism itself is basically saying that you constantly update your beliefs based on every evidence that you're getting. So I don't know if I don't Updating beliefs is hard. So Bayes' rule tells you that like every piece of evidence you see should have some impact on your hypothesis about the world. Basically, like every day that I goes by that I don't see a miracle happening, I should like update slightly lower. Like, oh, I thought God was one in a million. That's like one in a million and one. Uh, and in reality, I think this sort of incremental updating is itself very hard to do. Especially when you believe in something and then like the amount of evidence that comes in comes like a lot of tiny and disparate sources. None of them are really enough to switch you. And usually the way human psychology works is you just can believe one thing, maybe subconsciously you hold out that you may be wrong, and then some critical mass of evidence falls on you at once and you have an epiphany and you switch. So actually, like, you know, if I believe that uh, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage to $20 would be net bad for working class people in New York, then I guess like every unemployed person I know should like cause me to increase that by 0.1. And every time I see a study about the minimum wage in New York going up, I should like decrease the probability a little bit. Um, and it doesn't really happen, that's very hard. I think the only tool to actually make that happen is to make a lot of bets with people. And this is something that uh, rationalists do and like degenerate gamblers do, and I'm like a bit of both. It's like I gamble on sports a lot. Um, so it is really useful. Like, and I have friends like bet on politics a lot. And you hear people talk about, oh, the Democratic Party is like messing things up. We're like trotting out the same boring candidates. Trump is definitely going to be reelected. You could be like, okay, would you bet at like one to one odds right now that he'll be reelected? A two to one? One to two, like what do you think is actual, the actual chance? And if you have this habit, first of all, it's real tax and bullshit. When the people say stuff and you think it's nonsense, you can just argue with them or you can offer them a bet. And then even if they won't take the bet, which they usually won't, at least, I don't know, they like stop shouting that loudly about the things. You actually have to make them confront about, like what prediction does it make about reality, your claim that the Democratic Party is messing it up? And also it's like a better way to update. Like maybe if right now you're willing to bet that Trump won't get reelected like three to two, 
but then, I don't know, a week passes and you saw some approval ratings numbers and you read something bad about Joe Biden and something else, and it's like hard to like really change your mind massively, but maybe next time you're making a bet, you're like, I kind of feel uncomfortable betting three to two. Maybe I'll bet at like even odds right now. That feels safer. Um, so kind of when you have to turn it into explicit numbers, which you have to do if you want to gamble and stuff, she just recommended because it's really fun. Um, <laughs> then I guess like that's my trick for trying to update incrementally. Um, let's turn to uh, the two aspects of rationality, epistemic and instrumental. Like to say something about that. Yeah, so in the beginning of the sequences about rationality, kind of the core text talks about that, like what is rationality? Like what is it good for? And you can say, well, it's good for two things. One is you want to believe true things about the world, like having a map that reflects the territory. And two is you want to be efficient. You want to achieve your values. You want to, like, you know, get to where you're going, be rich, happy, famous, save the world. Whatever it is. Okay, we can call the first one epistemic rationality. So basically seeing reality clearly. And the second one we can call instrumental rationality. So you want to make direct reality into some state where you're happier with it. And I don't know, I guess it was useful at the time. I actually think this distinction is pretty bad because it caused a lot of people to like, try to find a wedge in this distinction and say, ah, look, if I believe that I'm really capable at some task, I'll be optimistic and I'll do it better. So really I should convince myself that I'm more confident and more competent than I am, and then I'll do better in the world. And I try to find like edge cases where believing true things actually makes life worse for you and believing wrong things actually makes life better. And I find it like a bad habit and a pointless thing to do. And by and large, it's just like how your brain works. It really doesn't differentiate that much. If you look at modern neurology, research and things like predictive processing, just the keywords for people who want to Google, your brain doesn't really differentiate seeing the world from acting upon the world. It's like some good evidence that you, th you see things, like you see this phone as like an object I can lift and throw or use. Uh, like by and large, for you to, like you should believe in true things because it will make you act on the world better. Uh, you'll be able to like act on the world more efficiently and achieve your values uh, by believing true things. And then, to find a distinction where that's not the case, where there's really like a gap between what instrumental and epistemic rationality would imply, to really reach that point, you need to be like so epistemically brilliant and have such a deep understanding of what's happening, such a deep understanding of human psychology around how having an overstated view of your ability actually in the long run will make you more effective, that you don't really need to believe that. Like you probably already know a lot and you can just use that directly to be more effective. Uh, so I kind of see them as one as the same. Maybe they're just different motivations. Again, some people are motivated by achieving great things that like by any means possible. Then you convince them that, oh, if you like learn how to believe true things and not believe bullshit, then like you'll be more effective. And some people are the other way around. Uh, I really see them as one as the same. I think it really comes up rarely when there's daylight between them. Excellent. Uh, let's open it up to questions. Questions. Nick. So, 
Um, what would rationality say about creating your values? So using, for instance, the immigration tweet you talked about before, like first yeah. person said they're on welfare and then they said that they're taking our jobs, but both of those are evidence towards the truth that they're trying to prove. Like, is there any, is there any way, like, does rationality help build your values from like the bottom up? So, Another chair maybe wanted to ask me about Peterson. Yes. Uh, but we'll get to that a bit later. Um, then, does the rationality is about believing true things and acting effectively upon the world? It doesn't have a lot to say around what your values should be. It's not really a moral system. Rationality uh, does help you, like it does change people's values to some extent. So, for example, you can understand where your values and motivations come from. Like if you understand, like you study evolutionary psychology and you learn it applies to you, and it gives you a window into where your moral intuitions come from, and why you might like people that are a bit strange, but then why you might be afraid of people who are a bit strange. Uh, you might learn culture and anthropology to understand how people look at immigrants. Then it might change your values because you just see them a bit more clearly, rather than just having some sense of like, I don't know, I'm uneasy around foreigners, or I'm uneasy around people who are uneasy around foreigners, so I should like foreigners. Uh, you have like a clear picture, so at least like your values are more coherent. Um, I think a lot of, like, rationality impacts a lot of things, like how many people have heard of effective altruism? Right, so, effective altruism kind of has, it starts from this premise that like, okay, we want to reduce suffering and make the world a better place and like help other people and other sentient beings. So like how to do it in the more effective way. And here rationality comes in and like, ha, instead of like looking at pictures of like cute puppies, you should really do randomized control trials. Um, so rationality really helps with the effective part, but I kind of think rationality has like the power to make you altruist other than maybe tell you, hey, here are like good ways you can introspect. And if you introspect really well, we hope you decide that you're altruist. And if you introspect and decide that you're a psychopath, I think it would be hard to talk you out of it with rationality. Maybe Jordan Peterson could. But like, I don't think Scott Alexander could. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I really liked your piece on Jordan Peterson. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about it? Many of these, uh, many of the, Regulars here are familiar with Jordan Peterson. They've read the book and everything. So, yeah. what's your take on Jordan Peterson? Yeah, it's great. So, yeah, I wrote my piece, and then Scott Alexander, who's like, I think like the premier rashes blogger right now, wrote his piece three weeks later, and I beat him because I didn't actually read the book. I just listened to Jordan Peterson and like ten, 10 hours of podcasts. Like, okay, I think I have like a good idea of what the book is. So I can just like, go ahead and write my piece and like be first to the punch. So, Scott calls him a prophet. Uh, he says that there's a lot of things that people struggle with today. So like, what should my values be? Uh, why am I suffering all the time? What's the meaning of life? And everybody like really fails at providing good answers to those things. Um, either they don't really believe what they're saying, and they kind of give you fake answers and you sense that they're like fake and they don't have a worldview behind them. Or this is something that maybe like a humanities education is supposed to provide, but when you actually go and study a humanities education and read books, then 
they don't like really give you good answers. They like, talk a lot about, I don't know, analyzing texts and frameworks and all, like political ideas that you don't find intuitive. So Jordan Peterson like, came up with like, a super coherent worldview that imposes meaning on everything. And I think for rationalists, like, Jordan Peterson is not a rationalist. He like, does not care a lot about like, careful quantitative updating of his beliefs. But I think it's very useful to be able to kind of employ him as sort of like a fake framework. So, like, we need narratives to describe the world. This is something that, like, uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book *Sapiens* is about, and it's actually like, hard for us to operate in the world and like feel that what we're doing is meaningful if we're just trying to do computations and things. So, here's an example. I want to get in shape. Like, this is something I struggle with because I have this kind of intuition that like a real wrestler should have a six-pack. Because, like, yeah, muscles are difficult, motivation is difficult to understand, but, like, come on, we're rationalists. Like, we can figure out complicated stuff. And, like, I don't have a six-pack, so it's hard. So maybe, like, the rationalist answer is, okay, you, like, go and you study different, like, workout techniques and different diets, and you, like, figure out which one is optimal for you, and you do that, but like, that doesn't really work. Uh, observably, like out in the territory, it doesn't give me a six pack. And Jordan Peterson's answer, I think, would be, admit to yourself that you're a slob and do 50 push-ups, right now. And like, you'll feel better. Right. And like, yeah. <laughs> so, I think I like, fills in some of the gaps about living a good life that kind of are outside the scope of rationality. Um, I don't know. It's more or less useful depending on kind of where you come from, how much those things, like the meaning of life, trouble you, how much things, like where does your motivation come from, and where your values come from. Uh, like if, there are a lot of bad systems of creating coherence and values of motivations, all kind of ideologies and cults and religions, um, or you can just be in a state of confusion and not really have one. Or Jordan Pearson offers one that's like a reasonable alternative, and it has useful pieces even if you don't take everything he says literally. Okay. Questions? Larry, I, I love the numbers that you use. Uh, I yeah. think that's really helpful in thinking and, and trying to have an open mind about not you know, proving you're right, but have an open mind. It, do, does a rationalist think that this is a good tool for business, or is this just a, a main tool for personal development? I think it's definitely a good tool for business. Yeah, I think, I think so. most people's objections are the opposite. Like when I apply numbers to dating, like, how can you apply numbers to dating? It's such like an intuitive thing. Like, either there's chemistry or there isn't. Uh, so I think, like, I don't know, I work in finance. It seems to be, like, pretty obvious that rationality applies there. And finance is almost like, like an easy mode, or business is like an easy mode way to practice rationality. Like, you have an idea. It either makes money or it loses money. It's a clear evidence that should make you update your hypothesis. And there's like not a lot of wiggle room around it. Uh, it's been successful or it doesn't. The clients are happy or they don't, and ultimately like you have a profit or you have a loss. So yeah, I think not only it applies, it's like a good place to start from. 
Yeah, like sports gambling is like the super easiest one. And then like business, which is kind of like gambling and economics. And then like, I don't know, applying it to more things that people usually think of more uh, in gut feelings is like harder mode. But I think most people think of business. That's like the one place where they try to turn on their like system to thinking. So let's take, yeah. let's follow up on the, the hard uh, places where it is hard to apply numbers. Why should you apply numbers uh, to places where it is hard to apply numbers? What, what, what do you get from it? Like dating, for example. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I think a lot of the objections to Bayesianism is, well, I mean, wherever it works, it's obvious. Like everything, like most of the examples I gave right now, around the like immigration and this and that. But like, yeah, I don't need to like read any books or sequences about that. This all stuff is just common sense. And then when you step a bit outside of common sense, the things that are actually hard to think about, people are like, well, I mean, none of this applies here. This is just a hard topic. Um, so I think when you realize, and again, maybe this works for me more than for other people, but um, this is like a story that might make a lot of people here kind of freaked out about me, but I was in OkCupid, uh, and there were like two women that started dating at the same time. And after like three or four dates with each one, I felt like I probably need to make up my mind and kind of keep dating one and not both of them, because this is getting kind of weird. And I'm like, okay, I'll just like go with what my gut tells me. And my gut changed its mind like 10 times within a week. And I, like, I couldn't sleep, and I was just thinking about it all the time, and I couldn't make up my mind. And then I thought, okay, wait, this is exactly the sort of place where rationality tells me I'm in danger. Because it's a decision that involves like 50 variables. Like what makes me happy in a romantic relationship is like a very hard decision. It's very complex. My brain doesn't like making hard decisions. It can maybe hold one or two variables at once. And also, it's like easily hijacked by like short-term considerations. Like, oh, she wore a sexy dress yesterday, so that's all I think about. And this is the sort of decision that might have impacts on my life 50 years in the future. So I actually sat down, I tried to figure out, okay, what actually like, what do I actually look for in a romantic relationship? And I came up with, I think, 25 attributes. I think, okay, like how, um, and how important is each one of those? The kind of the, the difference in sense of humor from like here to here, how does it compare to having compatible philosophies of parenthood or something like that? And just try to come up with some numbers, like no matter if they feel fake. Um, I came up, I actually put it in a spreadsheet and I thought that like I was sure they would come up to the same number in the spreadsheet because I really couldn't decide between them. And then one of them like, came out way, way higher which was kind of surprising to me. And I'm like, okay, I threw away the spreadsheet, but two days later, I still decided to like keep dating that one and broke up with the other one. Um, so the like one punchline to the story is that we're married now. So that worked out. <laughs> and the other thing is- well, what are the odds that it will work out? Of husband married? Well, I don't know. Like I didn't marry any of the, like, the previous 
20 people I went on dates with. And I married this one, and it's pretty good. So, with the one with the lower? No, the one with the higher. The higher, no. So, like, it's, it's not like, yeah, that, that's kind of also what gave me evidence is probably like after we were dating for three months, I told her about the spreadsheet. She was like, that makes sense. It's like, yes. <laughs> not the right person. Uh, she's seen the categories, but not her scores. <laughs> but some of it is, like, ultimately, like, it's not like I swore that I will just do what the spreadsheet tells me. Because, like, even I don't work that way. But it helped me organize my thinking. Like, it made me think, what do I actually like about her? What am I worried about? What should I find out more before I make a decision to commit to a romantic relationship? Um, so for me, it's easy to do with numbers because that's just a way to systematize this. And it really comes from, I don't know, like, I like really deeply intuitively feel that I suck at those kind of decisions and that like, my intuition is not a good tool for this. I need something else. And kind of basically the only tool I have is something like numbers. Maybe for somebody else, the only tool they would have is doing a poll of their friends or a pro-con list. But just the idea that you should identify when there are like difficult decisions that you usually make with your intuition, and instead of saying, well, they're very difficult and complex, I can't systematize them, say, ah, no, no, this is exactly when I should systematize them, and maybe it will give me clarity. Excellent. Uh, Kweiss, you had a question, and then Larry? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a great system. It's a great example that you had 25 factors. How did you prioritize? Did you did you prioritize, and, and it, did the eight priority factors count more than the other 17? How did, how did you do that? Uh, a priority is the same way a company uh, prices a product. So you have like a lot of attributes of a product and you have like mathematical techniques for comparing them. So what I did is, okay, let's say sense of humor. I need to quantify it. So okay, let's get like one to five. One is like the most like boring person I've dated. And five is like my favorite stand-up comedian. And then something else like attractiveness. I'm like, okay, this is something where I would consider like a one attractiveness and a five. And then try to think, okay, from dating someone that let's say like a four in humor and a three in attractiveness versus a two in humor and four in attractiveness. They kind of feel about the same. So I actually did like quantified calibration. I tried to come up with the scale for each one, calibrate the scale, like what's a one, what's a three, what's a five. And then they tried to compare things. And it included a lot of things that like, I'm not very proud to admit. Like one of them was, like, does it trace my social status that I'm dating them? And this is something like nobody wants to think, but like, well, if I had like two girls that I like them both very much, but one of them, like all my friends are like, yo, look at Jacob, like he's dating that person. And the other one, like all my friends are like, ah, oh, look at Jacob, he's dating that person. And like, you don't want to admit it to yourself, but it does make a difference. Maybe like not a big difference. So instead of just saying, ah, that's a minor thing, I'm like, no, I'd rather put it on the matrix, give it a low weight. Uh, carry it. So yeah, you like then score each one, multiply it by the weight that you gave the category, and you cannot do the sum product on those. Just one more question, because it's yeah. fascinating to me. Okay, just us girls talking here. Being in bed, having sex. Yeah. Is that up here 
down here. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious <laughs> on, on how you how you prioritize the rest of your life, you know, with with one particular woman. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's up to you to decide. Like how much. <laughs> some people care a lot about sex. Some people don't. Um, Maybe there's like not a big difference in like how good sex is. So uh, you're such a gentleman. And, uh, <laughs> I feel like this will give you too much Bayesian evidence about my wife. <laughs> if I answer that question uh, fully. Uh, I was curious, like for those, because you're in that community, for people who have been in it for a while and who like are actively trying to pursue it. Um, how much are you able to kind of fight against, like instinct? Like you use that example of, of the, the kind of like that stampede, the ride like that, the music event. Can, do you know people or have, you yourself, can, do people reach a state where they can kind of rein in the, a natural impulse? Like in that scenario, which is, you know, fight or flight to flee? Can you use rationality, or do you know people who can say, whoa, and even in that kind of like heated environment, begin to think very clearly? So my prediction is that if I was in that concert, I would have just like stampeded with the crowd. Um, but there are other like easier cases where I see people being like obviously wrong in ways that make their life worse. And like, I don't fall for that. Um, so it's become only instinctual for you. Yeah, so it's a weird thing. I think. People come at it with really different uh, inherent inclinations and abilities. It's like a big part of rationality is like not being overconfident in your beliefs. And this is something that, like, if you study rationality a lot and you catch yourself being overconfident and you make a lot of bets and you talk to people, you definitely can improve that and get better at it and not be overconfident. And like, not lose your money on some scam or I don't know, fail to consider alternatives. But then, I don't know, like, my wife is just like, incredibly naturally gifted at not being overconfident. So I call it like, calibration, like how confident you are in your beliefs. And without like, reading any rationality, she's like, one of the best calibrated people I know. Like if we have a disagreement that she says something, I like, almost fully update to her view. Um, so I definitely feel like I've gotten better at all those things, like not going with the crowd, thinking for myself, avoiding overconfidence. But I think if you look like all rationalists as a group and like all just other intelligent, nerdy people who've never heard of it as a group, you'll like see a lot of overlap. It won't be like a clear distance, like we're all some supermen. Um, like a lot of people really hate the word rationalist. Like, no, no, we're aspiring rationalists because someone was like a real superhuman in those like when you see somebody who like actually sees the world like this and you talk to them it creates a bit of an impression of like superhumans the like, wow, their brains are just like so finely tuned to truth and like i feel very far from that but like close enough that i can like see those people and it's fun to talk to them um i think that yeah. the, the um, the URL, less wrong, kind of captures that spirit, right? Yeah, definitely. The idea is like, it's not like we're gonna like finish rationality and then like our map will reflect the territory, it will be great. But you can definitely approach it. Uh, you can do better. Um, and a big part of less wrong, so Eliezer Yudkowski, who kind of like started less wrong, 
he wrote it with, like his actual instrumental goal is convincing people that we need to worry about self-improvement, artificial intelligence, and build a mathematical theory of AI safety. Um, it's kind of like a goal that's pretty out there. Like, a lot of people don't share that goal. But the problem with the most important and ambitious goals is like, you don't know how rational you need to be to achieve them. Like if your goal is just to make a billion dollars, and some people like have made a billion dollars, and they're like pretty rational and smart, but they're like not superhumanly rational and smart. It's like, I don't know, you have some business plan, how much rationality do you need to be to like understand markets and things well enough to create a unicorn? You don't know, but like every bit helps. So like read the sequences and the blogs and stuff. Uh, More questions. I might have misheard you, but I thought you implied that a true rationalist would be an altruist. Could you elaborate on that? No, so I think my answer was, there's a like, true rationalist is like, man, I, I don't like that. That sounds like a, like a definition that sneaks in a lot of connotations. Um, I think like, ration, rationality tells you what your values should be, and should you be altruistic? I think, again, just as an observable evidence, the sort of people who like, think a lot about rationality and introspect about what their values and motivations are, I think turn out to be more altruistic, but it might just be because, I don't know, we like go to a lot of shared dinners with the effective altruism meetup, and they're like cool people, and we like hanging out with them, so it makes us altruistic. Uh, I don't know, maybe what, uh, rationality helps you dispel a lot of beliefs that make you non-altruistic. So if you like have a belief that the world is divided into like evil people that are out to hurt you, and like good people who are your tribe, then I know maybe like you won't really think about okay how do how do I like improve uh, global health outcomes by donating effectively to African health charities? Maybe like rationality can dispel this sort of like simple tribalism, and then there's more room for some sort of like general purpose altruism to happen, but I don't know, maybe they're like both caused by the same thing. Maybe people who are kind of nerds are more likely to be utilitarian, which leads to effective altruism, and also more likely to like rationality. But I don't know if there's a strong causal link. Questions? Richard. You started talking about um, areas that are difficult to measure or put a number on it, and then you gave a dating example, but then you ended up actually doing it well. Yeah. So I guess I was curious about um, like, what are some areas that you find uh, most challenging in trying to put a number on it, and would you deem those areas less significant than what you can measure? What do I find hard to put numbers on? Um, yeah, I'm really curious about questions of motivation. Like, why do people do the things they do? Why do I sometimes feel like doing a certain things and I don't? Uh, how to deal with the fact that, like, on one hand, I want to go to the gym because like, I want to be in shape. It kind of feels nice. On the other hand, like, I also don't want to go to the gym. Like, I observably just like, man, I really don't want to go to the gym right now. Um, so. To me, it's almost the opposite. Because those questions are harder to think about, so I spend more time thinking about them, so they seem more significant than questions of like, which phone to buy? 
uh, or even like which person to date. Uh, maybe there are good ways to try to quantify them. There's just something that I know I think a lot about and I don't have a good mathematical theory of motivation that can work. Yeah, uh, like me measuring happiness is, an, is one that kind of came to mind. Like how do you quantify that? Yeah, I have some ideas around how to quantify <laughs> happiness. Uh, no, so you can like, quantify how different things make you happy just by thinking of preferences. Or even like I know Kahneman in his book talks a lot about the remembering self and the experiencing self. I'm like, oh wait, the, the remembering self is also just an experiencing self who just spends his time experiencing the time that he's reminiscing. So okay, like when I go on vacation, they want to spend more time having fun on vacation or like taking good photos. No, so good photos are good for the remembering self. Or maybe having something that won't be fun in the moment, but in retrospect, I think, oh, this was like a good character building experience. So I can think, well, like how much time will I actually spend reminiscing about it? So, like, so I'm from Israel, so I was in the Israeli army and I was in boot camp for four months. And like everybody in my unit was like unanimous that like while we were in boot camp that it sucked and it's the worst thing ever. You like sleep six hours a night and you like crawl around in the desert and do a lot of push-ups and like you're not sure why. And then like a month after bootcamp ended, we were all unanimous that this was the, the best thing ever and like a great experience that shaped who we are. Like okay, well like how much time in my life will I spend reflecting on bootcamp and how proud I am that I did it? Uh, Probably not four months. It's not gonna add up to four months of reminiscing. So maybe in terms of like pure happiness, this was like a net bad thing. And if somebody wants to invite me to something right now, and I'm like, that sounds like a pain. And they're like, no, 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 it's gonna be just like boot camp. I'd be like, ha, you won't fool me again. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if like I find it really convincing to myself. Just trying to look like an integral of experiencing selves. Um, I think it's like a lot of fake frameworks. Like, happiness is hard, but I don't know, maybe this is like one extra tool that you can use. Like, I'm not really worried about any one sort of tool or system really hijacking my thinking. The same way the girlfriend spreadsheet didn't like completely hijack the way I think about dating and romance and happiness. And obviously, when, once I'm like with the beautiful women, like all numbers immediately fly out of my head. <laughs> but OK, it's like an extra tool I can use. It might like steer me a bit more in the right direction. Maybe like on the margin, like make me come make a better decision once in a while. Uh, Have you considered um, uh, selling the uh, romantic uh, spreadsheet as a way of helping people to make uh, better decisions? Uh, I've not. I've been giving it out for free, but just writing a blog post about it and actually running a meet a meetup when I help people do decision matrices. Um, no, I think maybe that, that's something. By the way, I think for a lot of people, money is easy. It to sounds like a very altruistic thing to do. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I feel like I do it because I tell it to people and they look at me like, whoa, Jacob's a weirdo, or whoa, Jacob's so cool. And like both of those are like good reinforcements for me. <laughs> I think like my, because money is really easy to quantify, I think people over-focus on money. And a lot of decisions that they make that have a money component, that's really the only variable they think of. And if you're used to, th like the same way people think about money, I think about everything. 
are like you know converted to a currency of like happiness seconds or whatever then I find myself like thinking less about money like oh money is just like something that I can convert into happiness or time at a certain conversion factor like I don't know an hour of free time versus an hour of working is like worth this many dollars to me an hour of happiness versus an hour of washing dishes is worth that much and then like money stops being that important um, so yeah I feel like the joy I get out of like telling people about decision matrices is probably more than what I could charge for it but I don't know maybe I should charge for it how often maybe if you're talking to somebody who does this decision matrix and the numbers clearly say one but you know people are irrational and they choose more like the they, they choose the, the option where the numbers don't add up so when I do workshops about decision matrices, you know, like all the steps I talked about, about like figuring out the attributes and scoring them, those are like number two, three, four, five. And step one is, okay, what are you doing this for? Um, do you already, have you already kind of made a decision and you want to just rationalize it? The same way like you would hire a consultant to just do something your company already wants to do? Uh, do you like pinky swear to your future self that you're gonna follow what the matrix tells you? Uh, do you just want to know, like, I don't know, which attributes you're uncertain about? So, yeah, no, pe pe like, people can use everything in bad ways. And I think thinking ahead of time, like, what's your purpose with every technique might be useful. I don't know, maybe people, like, use it to horrible ends and just to, like, you know, using the matrix makes them just more confident in the decision they already made. And now they're like, haha, I can back it with numbers, so I must be right. In which case, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> more questions? Nick. When you're making decisions with this, do you figure in, like, the opportunity costs? So, for instance, like your concert example, you know, Yes, there's like a very, very, very small chance that it's an actual gunshot. But if you don't run and it is a gunshot, that's a huge opportunity cost. Like, yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah, no, ultimately you want to like maximize the happiness or something, like not getting shot as a highway. Yeah. <laughs> uh. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, you know, most people, even when they don't use numbers, they use words to describe things. You know, they say, most likely or probably or you know so there is kind of regular language which is used to kind of approximate things what is the i think there is a significant advantage you get when you try to put a number on it right i mean because yeah. it kind of forces you to say okay how much and that focuses your mind so i think there was some pretty interesting research when uh so I just did a survey, and there's like 40 expressions that express some sort of uncertainty. Then they ask people, okay, when somebody says likely, or almost certainly, or uh, that would be unbelievable, uh, like how often does that thing actually happen? And for a lot of those expressions, the range that people give like some people think that like likely means more than 25%, and some people think that likely means 90%. Um, so, putting actual numbers on it also helps people agree. Like, maybe people really believe the same thing. Somebody says, 
I don't know, I think Trump is likely to get reelected. And somebody else says like, I think it would be shocking if Trump gets reelected. But really the first person believes that he has 40% and the second person believes he has 25%. And that's like not actually a very big gap. Um, versus if they just accuse the fuzzy words, then they can't understand each other, they can't agree, and they can't really update and learn from each other as well. I think also it makes it easier for you yourself to update your position because if you hold it in kind of a vague term, you do not really know when it's being, you know, when the, yep. the evidence conflicts with it. Yep. Okay. Uh, Nick. Thanks. Uh, so I did like the idea to quantify things, but uh, especially you come from a country with a conflict and uh, people in Gaza Strip, uh, it, it, you don't need to quantify their unhappiness, I think. So I just want to make your comment about do we need to quantify things in general? There are, there are some relevant things that we don't need to quantify and it could be relevant without uh, using numbers. So, actually, Scott, in uh, one of the articles about this, about using things with made-up numbers, you can you can quantify unhappiness. So, he was an example of like how much does like the life of a person in North Korea worse than the life of a person in the U.S. And coming up with some number is like more useful than just saying, well, I don't know, it could be about the same or it could be a million times worse. So, again, I don't make geopolitical decisions. To make it clear that like life as Gazan is like, significantly worse than life in most places, but maybe better than life in some places. Um, and if you are making decisions and you think of trade-offs, so I don't know, it's like improving the welfare of people in Gaza by 10%, is it worth 50 Israelis a year dying in terror attacks? Um, now, it could be a question like that, and when people think intuitively, like both of those sound like horrible. Like both human suffering and people dying in terror attacks sounds like absolutely sacred values you can compare. But I feel like I actually need to make a decision. I don't know. Maybe you're like an Egyptian politician who decides they want to like open my blockade in Gaza or not. They don't actually make decisions this way, but I kind of wish they did. Even as like somebody from outside, regardless of being Israeli. Uh, because especially things that affect a lot of people, like I'm not sure how many people there are in Gaza, probably a million, plus another eight million people in Israel, plus another two, three in the West Bank, plus 60 million in Egypt. And you're like making decisions about this many people, actually quantifying how bad their life is and how much it would be improved by some change. No, it seems like monstrous not to like try to put numbers in it carefully. Chris. I was just gonna ask, I don't, I don't think you said it was, how did you get into rationality? What was the, what was the reason? Or do you always, have you always thought kind of using math <laughs> so numbers? A, so on one hand, yes. I, I mean, I've kind of always thought about it. Um, all right, so there is kind of fun things. Like every rationalist has an origin story. So mine was pretty funny. Um, I studied math and physics in undergrad. I was like pretty mediocre at it, uh, but then I went to business school, which is kind of like the anti-rationalist thing. Like in business school, nobody cares about truth. You learn a lot of skills like how to talk confidently with a PowerPoint behind your back, regardless of the topic or your knowledge about it. And as I was there and feeling like I'm a bit out of place in business school, also my mom recommended thinking fast and slow to me. 
So I read that, and I felt like that kind of really set me up in a good mood. And then I saw an article on Slate.com. And the article was basically, there's a bunch of dumb nerds who are like afraid that some future AI is gonna torture them. Aren't they idiots? And I was like, that's weird. Like, why would some dumb nerds believe that? So I clicked through to that article that was making fun of rationalists, and it took me to a post unless wrong about something called the basilisk that you should probably ignore because it's the least interesting part of less wrong. And like, so from an article making fun of rationalists that gotten less wrong, like click through one more time, got to the sequences, and basically like, spend the next five months just creating everything on it I could. What are, what are sequences? Right, so the sequences is, this person, Eliezer Yudkowski, um, kind of just try to write a guide but what rationality is and how you can employ it. So basically, when you read something like Thinking Fast and Slow and or all of that research, there's like a sense that it's somewhat about other people. Like, oh look, people in general have this bias. People in general tend to do this. And then, well, the sequence is kind of like, well now it's a book that's basically a guide of like, okay, forget other people. How do you just apply this to yourself? What should be your like ideal picture of a truth-seeking person? And like how can you approximate it? And what are the obstacles in your way, which are the biases and the other things? So that's kind of the text, like foundational, that started as just a series of blog posts, and then immediately attracted a huge community around it that kind of started talking about and expanding those ideas. But this is kind of like the first core reading in rationality. Uh, and they're like a bit annoying to read and they're hard and he's pretty arrogant and they're like 1800 pages. But like a lot of people who've been rationalists for a while, they started reading them and they found this just like so mind blowing that kind of like ignored all the stylistic things. So that's how I got it. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much, Jacob. Right. This was. So now we're going to divide into groups of